We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Please join me in taking your copy of God's Word and opening them with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are going to be walking through verses 16 through 22 as we continue our journey together our great and glorious hope. And today we are talking about what a life of worship looks like. How many of you in here would consider you're a che- yourself a checklist person? You, you make lists. You're a list-making person. How many of you, uh, some of those are actually written out lists. Some of you keep them on your phone. Some of you make mental lists. But most people that are productive people are actually list-makers. Statistics show that people that get things done tend to be people who make lists. Because if you make a list, you then have to stare at the list and know whether or not you did what was on the list or not. Some people grocery shop without list. Some people just, and you see them, I see these people. They just walk aimless, and I mean, I've done it before. You just walk aisle by aisle and think, I wonder if we'll eat this. And you continue to go up and down the aisles, up and down the aisles. But with the price of groceries right now, you better have a list. Amen? You got to have a list. When you start your day, I think it is productive to have a list. What do I hope to get done today? Be realistic in that list. What is a realistic list of things I believe I can get done today? And then you should prioritize the list. What is most important? In other words, if I could only get one thing done today, what would I get done? And that ought to be number one. And you shouldn't go to number two before you get number one done. And as we develop those type of lists and those type of priorities, it is amazing how our efficiency comes up. It is amazing how our productivity comes up and also there is something that is just satisfying about a check being by something on a list, isn't it? Don't you like to look back and say, I said I was going to do that. I attempted to do that. I did that. And now it's done. I love it. I love it. I think it's something that is just gratifying. So if you're not a list maker, maybe that's why you're not getting anything done. Try that. That's not the end of the sermon, but try it this week, right? Well, if we would make a list to go to the grocery store and you would make a list about things that you needed to study and you would make a list about construction projects and you would make a list about every other thing in your life, why would we not think it would be productive for us to make a checklist when it comes to what it looks like to walk with the Lord? You'll remember that last week, Paul talked about the characteristics of a healthy church. He transitions now and we're going to talk about the characteristics of a healthy life of worship. What it would look like if you were to say a life of worship would need to meet these requirements. So our big idea this morning is that there are actions that should always characterize a life of worship and others that never should. There are actions that should always characterize a life of worship, and there are others that never should. So the way we've broken this text down this morning is we've put our alwayses together, and we've put our nevers together. We're going to start with our always, and then we're going to move to our nevers. So as you're taking notes today, you're going to see those. So I want you to try to pick them out as we read them together. So let's stand and read together. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 16. Be joyful always, pray continually, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. God, teach us today about the always that should characterize the life of worship. And also, Lord, warn us today about the things that should never, never be true of our lives of worship. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. These are short verses. In fact, if you want to memorize some scripture and say that you have memorized a lot of verses of scripture in a very short amount of time, then I would commend these verses to you today. In fact, the first verse is only three words and it constitutes our first point. Always be joyful. Always be joyful. Did some of you read that right off the bat? Did some of you as we were reading go, oh, he could just stop there. Always be joyful. Let, let, can we, let's just get real this morning. Before we go any further, and we're talking about this point, a lot of people won't get past this point because they'll immediately read it and think, oh, come on. You have got to be kidding me. There is no possible way I'm keeping that command. In fact, some of us know what it is to be pessimistic, Nancy negative, sourpuss. You have found a way to avoid this command with your whole life. And so for some of you, I'm asking you do not even try to get to point two. No preacher's probably ever told you this, but I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. If you get hung up on a point in a sermon and you know that the Lord has convicted you there, it's okay not to allow your mind or your soul to move to the next one because that may mean that God has absolutely got you right where he wants you. And when we read that command, and you're going to read several of these others, your immediate thought is going to be, there is no way. Your immediate thought is going to be, I can't do this. Do you know if that's your thought that you're exactly right? Do you know how many sermons I've heard on texts like this that it often follows something like this? Listen, find your inner strength, find your inner power, try harder, you can do it. That's setting you up for failure. I could tell you that and you're gonna walk out of here about be joyful always and something's going to happen and guess what? You will break that before you even get out of here. Someone, some of you will break that command in a few minutes when you look at your watch and say, I wish he'd hurry up. Some of you didn't drink enough coffee before you came in here and that's why you look like you do right now. Some of you are just thinking the whole time, I hope they don't run out of donuts before I get out of here. Your blood sugar's a little low and you're thinking, I, I can't be joyful always. Well, when I say you can't be, these commands are all wrapped up in the sanctification that we're gonna talk about next week because it is not you that has the power to do this, it is Christ in you, it is the Holy Spirit in you. But God is working in you, but some of you are getting in the way of what God's trying to do in your life. God's trying to bring these commands to fruition and often you will hear me pray, Lord, help me get out of the way. That's really all I wanna do in a sermon is get out of the way. The text is there, if I get out of the way, God's going to do something in your life. So to understand what it means to be joyful always, you've got to understand what he's not talking about. He's not talking about that you be fake all the time. 
He's not talking about that you simply smile and say everything's wonderful and act like nothing ever happens wrong. And no matter what happens to you, you act like you are just thrilled to death that it happens. You don't have to walk around smiling all the time because that's weird too. You know, that person that's always smiling and you're just going, man, that's weird. But real joy is not about happiness. It's not about circumstantial, situational things taking place in your life. But joy is a deep confidence of what we know to be true about God. What we know to be true about salvation. What we know to be true about the Holy Spirit's empowerment in our life. What we know to be true about how God has blessed us. What we know to be true about the sovereignty of God. What we know to be true about answered prayers. And what we know to be true about the Word of God. If I focus on those things, circumstances are going to change. How many of you know that? How many of you know that you can go from having your best day ever to your worst day ever in five minutes? You know that? So if this all depended on circumstances, this would be a terrible command because you can't control circumstances. Have you noticed that? Some of you are control freaks and that's one of the reasons it's so hard because you want to control everything and you control nothing. And you realize that not only can you not control circumstances, but come in close. Let me tell y'all a secret. This is worth you coming here today. Listen to me. You can't control people either. And if I can't control people and I can't control circumstances, but if people and circumstances determine everything about my life, what does that mean? That means I'm at the whim of everybody I know and I'm at the whim of every circumstance. That seems like a pretty terrible way to live. That's when you let circumstantial happiness determine your life instead of joy being able to determine your life. Always be joyful. But one, there's a way that we can find out how to do that there, there's a secret to that and it comes in the next verse and this verse is only two words ready always be joyful second always pray always pray verse 17 now this seemed like I, I can remember the first time I read through the bible years and years ago and I came to this verse of scripture and I highlighted it and then I kept coming back to it because I thought wait a minute if being joyful all the time is difficult, praying all the time seems like that's even harder. How are we supposed to pray all the time? Well, we need to first off talk about what it's not talking about. First of all, let me tell you some things that prayer doesn't have to be. It doesn't mean that prayer can't be these things, but prayer does not have to be these things. Number one, prayer does not have to be audible. Prayer does not have to be audible. You can pray without saying something out loud. Prayer does not have to have a certain posture. You don't actually have to have your head bowed. You don't have to have your eyes closed. You don't have to have your hands folded. I, can, I think sometimes as children, we, because in an effort as parents, and we're doing the right thing to teach our kids the proper reverence for prayer, we will tell them, bow your heads, close your eyes, put your hands together. And so in that, we're also teaching them that's the only way you can pray. Well, sometimes we get older and we still feel like that we're handcuffed if we're trying to pray without doing those things. But what Paul is teaching them is that it certainly you need to have times of concerted prayer where it's quiet and you were there and you were talking to God 
But we also need to recognize that, that you can pray anytime, any place. It does not matter the posture. It does not matter whether it's audible. It does not matter whether your eyes are open or your head's bowed or your hands are crossed. So what Paul is talking about is a way of life, an attitude. It's about a relationship and a fellowship with God. It's about focusing on constantly what the Lord provides for us when he meets our needs, when he gives us wisdom, when he delivers from temptation, when he delivers from trouble, when he delivers from fear, when he delivers from worry, when he gives freedom from guilt, when he gives spiritual growth. When we focus on those things all the time, we live a life of prayer. So if you're still struggling with this, let me illustrate first how we fall short of this. And then we'll try to talk about ways that we can do a little bit better. How often during the day do you think about God? I'm not talking about that you read through a New Testament book. I'm not talking about that you consider or work out some deep theological concept. I'm asking how often does God, the things of God, or the word of God come up in your mind? We used to sing a praise song years ago. And it would say, when I think about the Lord and how he saved me and how he raised me, how he placed my feet on solid ground. I love that song because I can remember even now when I hear it, I, when I think about the Lord, sometimes I just want to stop there before we go any further. When I, how often is that happening? I will live in a life of constant prayer if I'm thinking about the things of God. But I'll be honest with you, sometimes there are moments and hours and better parts of days that if you're not careful, a thought of God won't pop up into your mind because you're so enamored with either the things of the world or either the things of the flesh or either the preoccupations of your own life. So really praying without ceasing isn't about learning to go jump in a closet and bow your heads. It's to constantly be training yourself to think about God. One of the reasons that we pray alone is that it trains us when we are by ourselves to pray when we're not alone. We read the Bible every day, not just so that we would learn in that moment, but so that it fills our heart with the word of God so that the things of God constantly come up in our lives. And that way when I'm having conversations with people, I'm thinking about what God's doing in their life and I'm looking for what God, what's ha God's happening in their life that God is trying to work out in them. When I see things in creation, when I see things in the world, they remind me of the things of God. And this is about having your radar or your antenna tuned to the things of God so that you were in fellowship with him. One theologian said that there are 667 recorded prayers in the Bible. He also estimated that out of the 667 that 454 of them recorded answers. We have a God that answers prayers and what we need to do a better job of if we're going to always pray is try to pay attention to the prayer prompts that are in our life everywhere. When I say prayer prompt, what am I talking about? What do you see in your life that prompts you to think about the Lord and to talk with the Lord? That could be a conversation you have. That could be something in nature. That could be a song that you hear. That could be a problem you're facing. That could be a difficulty. But you've got to be at a place where from time to time, you are thinking about not only the Lord, but the things in your life are reminding you of the things of God so that we live in a place of independence. Now, 
One of the things this verse means that, that honestly, I think this may be even more important than what we just talked about. The meaning of this verse is not just that you should continually pray or always pray in the, in that you are never not stopping, but Paul is telling them, don't give up praying. How many of you sometimes have been tempted to quit praying because you wonder, is this doing any good? Is this working out? Is this affecting heaven? Is God listening? Is God doing anything about it? So part of what this verse is teaching is keep on praying. Even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. There should never be a period in your life where you have ceased to pray. Always be joyful and always pray. And as if that weren't enough, verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus always give thanks the Bible says that we have no excuse to be ungrateful if you had one thing that should dominate your life it would be thankfulness it frames everything else humanly humanly speaking just like having joy just like always praying this may seem impossible but Mary said something in Luke chapter 1, she said, but with God, all things are possible. When we think about giving thanks, I want you to just evaluate something really quickly in your life. You personally, how could you not be thankful? Really, how could you not be thankful? It seems a little ridiculous. To look over the course of our lives and figure out a way that we could not be thankful. I think this is true. If you had one thing that was the thermometer or the barometer of someone's spiritual health, it would be their gratitude. If you could only measure one thing in their life to figure out how their life of faith was going, it would be their gratitude. And the reason is, is that the only people who aren't thankful are people that are selfish. Why? Because if all we focus on is ourself, we start to realize, man, I'm not focusing on anything about what God's already done for me or what God's already shown me or how God's already provided. All I'm focusing on is what I want next. Give me, give me, give me. You say, well, well that doesn't characterize us. We're all at points a little bit like grown-up toddlers, aren't we? If you've ever watched a toddler, you don't have to wonder whether or not we were born into original sin. As precious as they are, they come into this world sinners selfish, ungrateful. The moment you give them one thing, they want something else. And those toddlers grow up and they become you and me. And if we're not careful, we get into a rhythm of life where all we do is complain about what we don't have and what people haven't done and what we wish would happen and if I had this and if I had this and at the end of the day, you have so much more to be thankful for than you do to complain about. And if we would become more thankful, our spiritual health would grow exponentially. So it's something that we train ourselves to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've got to find a way to be more thankful in my life, to give thanks and to have more gratitude. So be joyful, always pray, always give thanks. And then it says, always 
Be discerning. Look at verse 21 and 22. Test everything, hold on to the good, and avoid every kind of evil. Always be discerning. When it says that we are to be a people who test everything, it's talking about discernment. And if I had to list a spiritual quality that I believe is lacking in the church today and in the life of individual believers today, it would be discernment. It seems that because we have gotten away from a true biblical hermeneutic, because we have quit stressing people being in the word and in God's word and listening to God's word, then what happens is, is that we begin to listen to every passing voice in every passing wind. And so when it comes, it's not just about listening to preaching, it's about everything in your life. You ought to be able to distinguish truth from error. And another thing that I think is challenging about that is this is the only time in world history that people have actually declared that your truth can be your truth and my truth can be my truth. So we say things that are absolutely foolish. We say things like, well, this is what I think is true for me. But if something different is true for you, then it can be. And we both can hold on to those truths. And so we've taken discernment and thrown it out the window because if there's no right and there's no wrong, there's nothing to discern. You follow me? Do you follow what I'm talking about? That's the world we live in. We told people you don't even have to discern anymore. Don't worry about discerning. Just let them feel like what they want to feel and this group feel how they want to feel and it'll all be okay. In fact, one of the things, if there's generationally that we've applauded, it's been open-mindedness. How many of you know this? We need to be more open-minded. You heard it here first. We need to close our minds. And let me tell you what I mean. This, this, this quote is old. G.K. Chesterton said this, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it on something solid. Right? So we want to shut our minds on truth because once I've latched on to the truth, there's no reason to need to open my mind either to let the truth out or to let lies in. And so once we determine that, it allows us to be discerning because I'm able to measure it against the word of God and I'm able to measure it against truth. And that way, every passing whim doesn't, that doesn't come at me. Now, another thing that hurts us is, is this word that is so overused. The word judgmental. Well, we just can't be judgmental. You heard it here first. Some of you need to become more judgmental. Now, if you're struggling with that, let me just tell you what I mean. Certainly, Jesus said, you have not sinned, cast the first stone. But what I'm talking about here is judging truth from error, right from wrong, sin from, sin from goodness and righteousness. And we do judge that. We judge that all the time. And sometimes we'll say, well, we just can't be their judge. They're living for the devil and they're living for hell. That's not a judgment that you make. That's the judgment that scripture has made. We're not asking you to do something that is outside the bounds of scripture. We're saying we have to be discerning enough to be willing to say that there's right and there's wrong, that there's truth and there's lies. So we're discerning. 
And as we're being discerning, so that, that gives us some always, some always be joyful, always pray, always give thanks, always be discerning. But, but, but let's end with two nevers, all right? There's some things you should never do. And, and here's n- number five. Never quench the Spirit's fire. Do you see that verse 19? Do not put out the Spirit's fire. What an abused verse of Scripture this has been. Because often in charismatic circles, this, this verse is what is used to say, well, you should just let anybody do anything they want, anytime they want to in service. You ought to let anybody say anything or you ought to let it go because we don't want to quench the Spirit's fire. Just from the context, is that what Paul's talking about? Just let anything go. Don't quench the Spirit. No. I want to give you the simplest most direct explanation. We're not even going to spend a long time here because it's that simple. What does it mean not to quench the Spirit's fire? You need to know how would one quench the Spirit's fire? If you do not do something that God tells you to do or if you do something He tells you not to do, you have quenched the Spirit's fire. What else? That's it. That's it. If you are convicted to do something in your life and you don't do it, you have quenched the Spirit's fire. If you're convicted to start, or if you're convicted to start, stop, if you are convicted to make a change in your life, if you are convicted by the Holy Spirit of God to do something in your life and you don't do it, you have quenched the Spirit's fire. Never do that. And number six, never treat prophecies with contempt. Look at verse 20. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. And it tells us to test everything, hold on to the good, and then avoid every kind of evil. Now, what, it, what does it mean not to treat a prophecy with contempt? Now, what if somebody jumped up here right now and said, I have a fresh prophecy I'd like to give. In case you're wondering, I'd tell them to sit down. That's actually happened here before. I have people call me from time to time that the Lord has told them that they need to preach here, that God has given them a fresh word. And most of the time I say, well, that's interesting because God didn't tell me that. I didn't get a fresh word that you were supposed to preach here Sunday, so I think I'm going to preach Sunday. And that's not because I'm being ugly. That's because we need to understand what prophecy is. You say, well, prophecy is all in the Bible. Don't you believe in prophecy? Absolutely, I believe in prophecy. What Paul is writing about here is the need for us to respect Scripture. Prophecy is the spirit-endowed skill of publicly proclaiming God's Word. Let me say that again. Prophecy is the spirit-endowed skill of publicly proclaiming God's Word. So... Let me ask you this. Do we have God's word? 66 books, right? 39 in the old, 27 in the new. True or false question? Everybody ready? The canon is closed. True. That means that no books are going to be added to the Bible. That until Jesus returns, your Bible is complete. And it has been complete since the first century. So since we know that, That means that anything that is said, 
Anytime somebody claims to be a prophet or to have a prophecy, anything that claims to be said must match up with what scripture says. So if somebody says, I have a fresh word, that's one of the things that tells me that you need to be, never allow that person to speak. Why? Because if it is fresh, that means that it did not come out of scripture. And if it did not come out of scripture, then we don't need to hear it. Amen. If it, if it did come out of scripture, that's great, but it's not fresh. I don't want fresh. I want ancient, right? I want truth. I want to know that when someone opens their mouth, that it's coming out of the word of God. Everything said must be in accord of scripture. There's no new revelation so what prophesying, for the best way for us to understand prophesying, has become what we would now call expository preaching or expository preaching, teaching, that we are explaining the word of God and that people are to listen and to obey. That's what it would look like not to treat a prophecy with contempt. Be skeptical of fresh words. Be fr skeptical of new revelations. If it's something that scripture already teaches, it's not fresh. If it's something the Bible does not teach, it's heresy. So the easiest way for us to say is, instead of talking about new prophecies, why don't we talk about old prophecies? And here's one of the reasons, let me just give you real practical. I don't think any of us would say that we, have, we are so obedient to the word of God that we need God to give us more stuff because we've mastered this. The students last Wednesday night talked about creation. One of my children came home talking about, you could spend months on in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I said, you spend your whole lifetime. You never get out of Genesis 1-1. The Bible is sufficient. It is sufficient. And we will never, ever mind the depths. So let me get real practical before we end this morning. I want you to see those six things that you've either written down or the six things that are on the screen in front of you. Because I get this next question a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Brother Larry, Brother Bradley, Brother Scott, Brother Chris, I just, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. What's God's will for my life? Are you ready? Because I'm going to give it to you today. Always be joyful. Always pray. Always give thanks. Always be discerning. Never quench the Spirit's fire and never treat prophecies with contempt. That's God's will for your life. That's what a life of worship looks like. Sometimes we try to get so complicated that we forget that it really is that simple. Now, if any of these that we have mentioned, if you've gotten hung up and said, I, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I can do that. You're exactly where you need to be. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Because now you're, you're at a place where you would say, God, I need your help. God, I... I if you don't work in me, you know I'm not going to be joyful. I may not, not ever be joyful, but I'm sure not going to be joyful all the time. 
God, if your Holy Spirit doesn't work in me and prompt me to pray, I'm going to forget. I'm asking for your help. I want to be in constant relationship with you. God, I know how much I take for granted. Help me to be a more thankful person. God, help me to hear the lies of the world and of the culture and, and to discern those things. And oh God, even today I've been convicted about something and, and I don't want to quench the Spirit's fire in my life. So, so give me the courage and give me the strength to be obedient because God, I don't want to treat anything with contempt that's out of your word. Friends, if we start living like that, then we are on the road to the sanctification that Paul is describing and going to describe next week that we're going to talk about. As you look at this list, probably if you're anything like me, it's not one thing that jumped out, amen? I don't know. Maybe y'all looked at this list and y'all are like, I'm killing it. I, every one of those things I'm doing 24-7. But sometimes a list like this can be pretty overwhelming, and I know that. So I want to ask you to do something during this invitation. I want you to look, and I want you to pick one or two of those items straight out of Scripture. Because maybe you're overwhelmed by all of them. But would you pick one or two? Because probably one or two of those things are already seared onto your soul right now. Some of you, I didn't get past this on the list and you got a little hung up. Because you realized how desperately that needed to change or work in your life. So during the invitation, we always invite those people that don't know Christ to come to him for salvation. We always invite people that don't have a church home. And we want to invite you as well. But church family, I want to invite you. I want to read to you every now and then, every now and then, as the Lord gives me the privilege to prepare a message, he'll put a song in my heart. Sometimes it's a brand new song and sometimes it's an old song that I've been singing since I was a kid. And really what these six things that you see on the screen, this is probably set to music the best way I know to ask you to do this, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my love, Lord, my Lord, and pour it at thy feet. It's treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Those six things, that's a consecrated life. That's the kind of life I want to lead. And that's the kind of life I want you to lead. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.